Good morning, everybody. As Charlie mentioned, I am in a very chipper mood today. I got engaged yesterday. My, yeah. My fiance's right up here, so you can meet her if you haven't gotten to meet her. But it was a great day, so I'm in a very good mood today. And uh, yeah, it's kind of funny that I get to preach on the ordinances today, and you'll see why, but the, um, the, the image or the illustration of marriage actually suits really well baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so you'll see that as I go through our passages today. Um, but anyways, you can already see, so this morning we're continuing our series on the church. And, and so this Sunday, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper and baptism, which are called the ordinances of the church. And if you're wondering, okay, what do I mean by ordinance? I've got a definition for you on the screen that I, I think is helpful in kind of understanding what do we mean historically as we call the Lord's Supper and baptism ordinances. And here's the definition I got it from a man named Sean Wright. And he says, the term ordinances refers to the fact that Christ has ordained these rites as a means of visibly portraying the gospel. Of course, Jesus commanded many things, but only baptism and the Lord's Supper display the gospel in such a clear pictorial fashion. They are unique in this and thus are the only two ordinances we should practice in our churches. Elsewhere, Sean Wright says, in talking about the ordinances, he says that they portray the gospel, magnifying it and highlighting its importance. So last night after I proposed, we had a, a party at Katie's parents' house, and one of her roommates had printed off a lot of pictures from our relationship. And, and as I looked at those pictures, you know, those are all memories that I have of, of times with Katie, but the picture, it, it gives life to the memory. And this is probably true for all of us. We probably all have pictures at home, maybe of special friends, maybe of special places, and, and it, the picture gives life to that memory. It, it magnifies the memory. And, and what Sean Wright is saying, that in the same way Baptism and the Lord's Supper were given to us as a gift from God to magnify the glory of the gospel. They were given to help us see clearly and tangibly the good news of the gospel as we see it and feel it and taste it and touch it. Kind of like a picture. And so I really like this definition that they display the gospel in a clear pictorial fashion. So as I talk about, I'm going to talk about baptism, I'm going to talk about the Lord's Supper, but that's the big idea as I talk about both, that God has given both of these to us as a gift to help us see and taste and feel the good news of the gospel. So I'm going to talk first about baptism, and then we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. So with baptism, I've kind of got two questions I want to ask and I want to answer. The first question is, what does baptism symbolize? So we're saying that it displays the gospel in a clear pictorial fashion, but how? So what does, the, what does baptism symbolize? And I'd say it symbolizes two things. The first thing that baptism symbolizes, we're going to find in Romans 6, which was just read by Braden, and it's union with Christ. So that's the first thing that baptism symbolizes is union with Christ. And I've got these passages on the screen for you. But I want to look at it again. So Romans 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who die to sin still live in it? Here, we're about to see our key here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. So there you see it again. Into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there you see that language, this idea of baptism being associated with being united with Christ. You're united with Christ in his death. You're united with Christ in his resurrection. So we see this in Romans 6. We're going to see it also in Galatians 3. You can flip there, look on the screen. In Galatians 3, 27, we see, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, so there it is again, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul kind of changes the angle here. He talks about, being baptized into Christ as if you're putting on Christ. And the verb that he uses there is the same as putting on an article of clothing. So he's saying that what our, what our baptism symbolizes is putting on Christ. Like you put on a, a garment. Putting on Christ because you're united with Christ. We see it also in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2.12 Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism. There's that phrase again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there it is again, this idea of being buried with Christ in baptism. So we see this theme in these verses that baptism, first and foremost, it symbolizes that you have been united with Christ by faith. First and foremost, that's what it communicates. And uh, I found a, a definition of baptism from a man named J.I. Packer. I think this is a really helpful definition. It kind of summarizes what we just looked at. And he says this. He says, Christian baptism is a sign from God that signifies inward cleansing and remission of sins, spirit-wrought regeneration and new life, and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit as God's seal testifying and guaranteeing that one will be kept safe in Christ forever. And this is the key part I wanted to see. Baptism carries these meanings because first and fundamentally, it, is, it signifies union with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And this union with Christ is a source of every element in our salvation. Receiving the sign of faith assures the persons baptized that God's gift of new life in Christ is freely given to them. Isn't that a great definition? You know, and you think about it, in a lot of ways, union with Christ, it's like getting married, which again, I'm just going to talk about this a lot today. <laughs> it's a lot like getting married. And so Katie and I, we hope to get married on May the 30th. And so on May the 30th, we're going to get married, and what's mine will no longer be mine, but it will be ours. And so my car on May the 30th will no longer be my car, it will be our car. Luckily, this isn't true, but let's imagine from seminary I had $50,000 of school debt. Well, that wouldn't be my debt, that would be our debt. 
And but this is the case with marriage. What is yours, it becomes ours. And, and that's what Paul wants us to see in Romans 6, that, that when someone becomes a Christian, that fundamentally what that means is that you've been united with Christ by faith. And that what is yours has become his, and what is his has become yours. And so what we see is that in the same way, like I just talked about, my debt would become our debt. In the same way, our sin through union with Christ by faith, it becomes his sin and he dealt with it on the cross. And in the same way, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His peace with the Father becomes our peace with the Father. That, that is the, the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christian. And what we see so clearly in these verses is that baptism, first and foremost, that's what it symbolizes. It symbolizes that you have been united with Christ. What is yours is his, and what is his is yours. And that's why you have peace with God. So, first and foremost, it's union with Christ. What else does baptism symbolize? It also symbolizes that you've been united with Christ's family. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 12. So, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We read, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And isn't that interesting? We're not just, baptism doesn't simply symbolize we've been united with Christ, but also that we have been united with Christ's people. And so again, doesn't only symbolize united with Christ, but also you're united with Christ's people. I've got one more definition to Maybe kind of summarize this. This is from the London Baptist Confession in 1689. This was a long time ago, but I think it still rings true today. And it's a helpful definition. And they, they put it this way. They said that baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Now, I like this definition because you see, you see on the one hand that baptism symbolizes that you've been united with Christ. But it also, this definition also gets to, to the idea that baptism symbolizes that you are now a new person and you are committed to live a new life. And so this definition kind of gets both of those. But I wanted to read this definition because I think... In the Baptist church, I think we get the second part. I think we get the second part that baptism is about you're making a commitment to follow Jesus. I think we get that part in the Baptist church. But I think we sometimes miss the first part, that first and foremost, baptism is about you being united with Christ by faith and all of the benefits that you receive through that union. And this whole idea of walking in newness, we saw that in Romans 6. But you walk in newness because you've been united with Christ. And because you're united with Christ, you've been raised from the dead just like Christ was raised from the dead. We even see that in the act of baptism, that you go down, you're buried with Christ through union, you come back up as a new person, you're resurrected as a new person. So again, even the idea of baptism being about this commitment I make to follow Jesus, it flows out of you're united with Christ. And because you are united with Christ, you are a new person. So that is baptism. Um, my second question I want to talk about with baptism is, is baptism necessary for salvation? And I ask that question because there are some passages in the New Testament that it almost sounds like 
for someone to be saved, for someone to have salvation, you have to be baptized. Um, there's some passages that it sounds like in the act of being baptized, you were converted. And so I want to show these passages to you, and I want to make some brief comments on it, but okay, what are the passages that might hint at salvation being necessary to be a Christian? Or what are the passages that might hint at through baptism someone's converted? Let me read a couple of them for you. The first one is Matthew 28. Uh, we just see simply in Matthew 28 that we are commanded to baptize. Jesus tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we see very plainly, we are commanded to be baptized. We are commanded to baptize. Another one that's key is in Acts 2, 37 and 38. And Acts, well that's a little far for me. I'm, I'm going to find that one myself. Sorry, I gave you some small slides, Cameron. In Acts 2, 37 and 38, actually it's behind me. So now when, I just thought about that. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So he's asking, what should we do to become a Christian? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. So he says both, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we find out they repented and they were baptized. So what do I have to do to be saved? Peter says repent and be baptized. There's another verse that I think is even more difficult. It's 1 Peter 3. And in 1 Peter 3, Peter says baptism, which corresponds to this. He says now saves you. Now the rest of what he says is important. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, this is kind of tricky language, right? I mean, he says baptism, which now saves you. So these are some of the verses that people sometimes look at, and they say, oh, you were converted through baptism, or you can't be a Christian without being baptized. Now, there's verses that would push back on that, and I want to look at some of them. The first one I want to look at is Acts 10. I think this is a really important passage. So in Acts 10, there's a man named Cornelius who he fears the Lord, but he hasn't heard the gospel. And, and so Peter goes to his house and he shares the gospel with him. And I want to pick up in verse 43. So Peter is sharing the gospel with Cornelius. In verse 43, he's, he's sharing with Cornelius. He says, to him, so to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness, not believes and is baptized. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit had poured out even on the Gentiles. Now this is really important because we know, we know from other passages and even from this passage that when someone becomes a Christian, they receive the Spirit. When someone becomes a Christian, we see in 2 Corinthians 5, that means you've become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And the reason for that is that you're, not, you're united with Christ, and now you have received the Holy Spirit. And so what happened here 
Cornelius is, the gospel is shared with Cornelius, and he receives the Spirit. He becomes a Christian. He hasn't been baptized. We keep reading. Verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold baptism? Can anyone withhold water for, bapti- for baptizing these people? So I think this is a really important verse. We see that Cornelius became a Christian. He became a Christian because he received the Spirit. And he hadn't been baptized yet. And so I don't think baptism is necessary for salvation. And I definitely don't think that through baptism someone is converted. Uh, also, if you look at Acts 16, this is another example of this. In Acts 16, you, the Philippian jailer, he hears the gospel from Paul. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And he's told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So again, don't believe and be baptized. He just says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He believes, and then we see later that he's baptized. So you see some evidence for both. I think it's pretty clear that through baptism, no one is converted. I think it's pretty clear that someone can become a Christian apart from baptism. But I don't want to downplay the close relationship we see between baptism and salvation. There is, there's clearly a really close relationship in the New Testament between someone becoming a Christian and someone being baptized. And so how do we make sense of this? And again, I think marriage really helps us make sense of this. So on May the 30th, Katie and I are going to get married. And I actually had the privilege of officiating her brother's wedding this summer. And I remember I had this kind of funny conversation with her brother before we did the wedding. And he asked me, he said, David, at what point do we actually become married? Like in the ceremony, when is the moment that we become married? And I was like, man, that's a great question. And, and so I've thought about that question some. And so even for us, so on May the 30th, we're going to enter into a covenant relationship through vows. We're going to make vows and promises to each other. We're going to give each other a ring. And before a collection of witnesses will be declared husband and wife. The ring isn't what makes us married. I think the the covenant vows are what make us married. The proclamation before witnesses, that's what makes us married. But if you've ever been to a wedding, you know that this is said. You, You exchange your vows, and then there's a phrase that's said. And the phrase is, what symbol have you chosen today to signify this relationship? You've probably heard that before. That's what the ring is. The ring doesn't make you married, but the ring signifies this covenant relationship that's being declared before witnesses. I think that's the role that baptism plays. Baptism signifies that you're united with Christ and you're united with his people. It's not what makes you a Christian. It's not what saves you. It signifies it. But it is so closely associated with salvation, it makes no sense to separate the two. Kind of like it really makes no sense, especially in our culture, to separate the ring from the ceremony. They're just together. They go together. You'd probably be concerned about me if you saw me without my wedding ring on once we got married. Because that's just kind of the way our culture operates. The ring is so closely associated with the act of marriage itself that they just go hand in hand. And so in the same way, I think that's the, that's the role that baptism fills. 
it is so closely associated with salvation because it signifies it that all throughout the New Testament, they always go together. Someone becomes a Christian, they get baptized. Someone becomes a Christian, they get baptized. The baptism doesn't save, but it signifies that you have been saved. So that is baptism. Uh, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. So with the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, it directs our eyes in three directions. It makes us look back, it makes us look around, and then it makes us look forward. And I want to talk about each of these, and there's a couple of verses that help us see each of these. So it looks back. We see this in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. So in Matthew 26, verse 26 through 28, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see the same account told with a couple of different elements I want to point out in Luke 22. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you, he doesn't just say the covenant, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so we see here that the Lord's Supper, it calls our gaze backwards. It, it calls us to remember that Christ's body and Christ's blood were broken and spilled for us for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might be brought into the new covenant. Now you might be wondering, what is the new covenant? The new covenant is something that is actually mentioned in multiple places in the Old Testament. And there's one place where it's really clear that I think is important to see, and this is in Jeremiah 31. And again, I've got it on the screen for you. So Jeremiah 31, this might be the most clear passage regarding the New Testament. Sorry, not the New Testament, the new covenant. It says in verse 31, Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So there it is. I will make a new covenant. Well, what is this new covenant? Verse 33, this is the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So that's the new covenant. The new covenant is this promise that God would take a group of people, they would be his people, he would be their God. The law would be written on their hearts. They wouldn't need someone to tell them to know the Lord because they will know the Lord and their sin will be forgiven. That's the new covenant. And what we see in Luke 22 is that we have been brought into the new covenant as Christians because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. So it calls us to look backwards. It also calls us to look around. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. This is the other passage that Braden read for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17, 
The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? So there, isn't that interesting that here we see the Lord's Supper is about union with Christ, just like baptism. Now watch this, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So honestly, we see the same thing here that we see in baptism, that it's about union with Christ and union with Christ's people. And we see that we are united as one body because there is one bread. And so we, we see this idea that in 1 Corinthians 10, we see that the Lord's Supper causes us to look around. It causes us to look around, and it causes me to look around, and I see James, and I see Peggy, and I see Austin, and I see Cisco, and I see these people who I'm united with Christ, and they're united with Christ, and we're actually all united together because we're members of Christ's body. The Lord's Supper, it, it causes us to look around. And this is actually why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's really mad at the Corinthians. And this is where we find the, the verses that Clint always reads before we take the Lord's Supper, where there's a warning to, to examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. And I, if you think about the whole context of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul is so mad at the Corinthians because they are one body. But they're not acting like one body. They're acting divided. And Paul wants them to see that what the Lord's Supper symbolizes is that you are one family, that you are one body. The New Testament often talks about Christ being the head of a body and we are the members. We're the fingers and the toes and the kneecaps. And yet in 1 Corinthians 11, that's not the way the Corinthians were acting and he was mad at them. And, you know, this helps us see that the gospel changes our lives socially. It should change our lives socially. The gospel should change the way that we see people, the way we treat people, the way we interact with people. Because like I just said, James and I, we're both members in Christ. Maybe I'm a finger in your toe, I'm not sure, but we're members in Christ and so we treat each other differently. And you know, I think this whole idea of the Lord's Supper causes us to look around, it helps us see that if the gospel hasn't changed our lives socially, if it hasn't changed the way that we interact with people and treat people, then you've got to wonder, do you have a, an anemic understanding of the gospel? Or do you actually know the Lord? Because we see here that we're not just united with Christ, we're united with his people. And because of that, our lives are changed socially. So that's the second one. It causes us to look around. Lastly, it causes us to look forward. We see this in Matthew 26. So Matthew 26, 29, this is when Christ was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples that I just read. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the Lord's Supper, it also casts our gaze forward to a day when we will actually enjoy this feast with Christ. 
And we see this clearly in Revelation 19. This is a beautiful passage. So in Revelation 19, Christ's second coming is described as a marriage feast. And I'm going to read this for you. So in Revelation 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. You see that? The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. For the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know, Clint talked about the invisible and visible church a couple of weeks ago. And um, again, I've already mentioned how the New Testament describes the church as the family of God, it describes the church as members of one body. You know, another way that the New Testament describes the church is as the bride of Christ, that Christ is the bridegroom and his church is his bride. And that's what we see here, that in Christ's second coming, we see a marriage feast. It's described as a marriage feast. And so that, that's what Revelation 19 and the Lord's Supper, it is calling our gaze forward to the day when Jesus Christ returns. And so I say to you, the Lord's Supper reminds us that Christ is coming back. He will return. There will be a day when we no longer live by faith because we will live by sight. We will see him, not through a glass dimly, but we'll see him face to face. There will be a day when faith and hope will pass away because we'll see him face to face. We don't need faith, we don't need, we don't need hope anymore. But love will remain because we see him face to face. So the Lord's Supper calls us to look backwards. It causes us to look around. It calls us to look forward. And so to summarize, so to summarize both the Lord's Supper and baptism, there's, um, there's three things I want to point out, and, and then we'll be done. The, so the first thing I want to point out is notice that both baptism and the Lord's Supper, first and foremost, they're about union with Christ and union with His people. And one of the things that makes us unique as a Baptist church is that we believe that, that baptism and the Lord's Supper should only be given to those who, to the best of our knowledge and ability, are united with Christ and united with His people. And this is something that makes us kind of unique as a Baptist church. Most denominations agree with us on the whole idea of the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper should only be given to those who are Christians, only those who are united with Christ. But the baptism piece is kind of unique. Most denominations actually disagree with us on this. Um, most denominations, whether it be Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, Anglican, they'll baptize infants. And so this is one of the things that makes us unique as a Baptist church. We think that... Only those who, to the best of our knowledge, appear to be united with Christ should receive this sign that signifies that you are united with Christ. So that's kind of an important distinction to a Baptist church that you want to be aware of. Um, second, notice that baptism and the Lord's Supper are what bind the church together as the church. 
And I say this because like Clint, Clint talked about a couple weeks ago, you've got the invisible church and the visible church. And what's tricky about the invisible church is that it's invisible. And so first, and you know, I mean, just broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is, is an invisible kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom that's made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so it's kind of hard to tell who's in the kingdom and who's not. Because, you know, for, for those of us who are American citizens, we have a passport, we have a driver's license, and there's a board, you know, oftentimes with a country, there's a clear border. This is a part of the country, this is not. And so oftentimes with a, with a kingdom or a nation, there are these kind of clear dividing marks of when you're in the country, when you're not, who is a member, who is not. But you don't really have that with the church because it's invisible. And that's part of the reason why Christ has given us baptism in the Lord's Supper. There are ways in which we as a church say, we are united with Christ and we are united with each other. It's a way in which the church is able to say, this person, we declare that to the best of our abilities, we believe this person is united with Christ. And so they bind the church together. And this is really important. It's what makes the church the church in a lot of ways. We gather together. We celebrate baptism together. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And lastly, I want to say that um, notice that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are commands. They're both commanded. In Matthew 28, it's really clear. We're commanded to go baptize. We're commanded when we come together. I didn't point this out, but in 1 Corinthians 11, you see this phrase, come together, about five times. We're commanded when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so notice that they're commands, but they're commands that are meant to be a blessing. They're commands that God has given us because, like I said earlier, they display the gospel in a clear pictorial fashion. And so Christ has given us a command, but the command is meant to bless us. And then in the same way, notice that they're blessings, but they're blessings that come in the form of a command. And I think that's important because that's the Christian life. And you know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope it's been really clear that to be a Christian is to be united with Christ by faith. That's how you become a Christian, that through faith you're united with Christ. And you receive all of the benefits of salvation through your union with Christ. But also, once we become Christians, we know that, that our God has much to say about our lives. He has much to say about the way we live and the way we don't live. And baptism and Lord's Supper are helpful there because we see in baptism and Lord's Supper that they're commands that are meant to be a blessing and they're blessings that come in the form of a command. And in the same way, everything our Lord says about our lives, it's the same. He gives us commands, but the commands are always blessings that are meant to lead us in the way of life. And he gives us blessings, but the blessings always come in the form of a command. And so... I can't help but think what a great God we have. That he would give us these tangible, visible pictures of the sweet salvation that he has given us in baptism and the Lord's Supper because he knows how hard it is to live by faith and not by sight. So he's given us these amazing blessings in baptism and the Lord's Supper 
to help us see the gospel as we taste it, as we feel it, as we experience it. But then he doesn't just leave us on our own once we become Christians, but he gives us commands that are blessings that lead us to the path of life. That is a great God, and that is a God worth celebrating. So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that this is who you are and that you have given us the sweet gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we ask that you would give us the, the wisdom and the discernment to administer them wisely and faithfully and in the way that you would have us. That is, yeah, that's our hope for our church. We, we want to administer these joyfully and wisely. So I pray that you would give us that wisdom as a church. Thank you again for these great blessings that you've given us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And beyond that, thank you for the great blessings that you've given us through union with Christ. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for coming. And that you, your body was broken for us and your blood was spilled for us so that we might partake in all of the great blessings of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.